2, Seven Heads, Ten Horns, with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Season 2, Episode 3, The Secret Pod of Yaldabaoth. We're talking about the Gnostics today for a couple reasons. Irenaeus, who we discussed last episode, was really dedicated to presenting his theological rivals as heretics, and one group of quote-unquote heretics he covers is the Gnostics. So Gnostic theology and mythology is a major player in the second century, otherwise Irenaeus wouldn't have been so stressed out about them. We talk through what it means to say that this theology could be Christian or Jewish, and just how confusing and interesting the religious landscape of the second century Mediterranean really was. We're also discussing Gnostic sources for their really interesting stories and concepts about demons and their role in the world. It seemed important to compare this demonology with others we've covered in the pod so far. A note to our listeners that sexual violence appears a lot in Gnostic mythology, It's central to how they imagine the creation of the world and human beings. So just a heads up. Thanks for listening. And without further ado, on to the show. Welcome back, everybody. With me, as always, is Klaus Y. How's it going? (laughs) Klaus Y. Doing great here. Um, (laughs) Just reading about Lil Nas X's uh, blood drop devil themed Air Maxes, but Maybe we'll send we'll we'll save that gem for another time. I don't know. Okay, but I mean, one question: Did you get a pair? That's really what I need to know. One of the six hundred sixty-six. Yeah, I, I, they're like they're 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 really they're really uh, dear. So no, but I can okay. I can appreciate them from afar. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I guess that means we have to start talking about the complicated subject matter we assigned for ourselves now. I know this episode's been a stressful one. So much stress. Why does it have to be this way, Klaus? Reminds me of like other episodes that are of a highly technical nature, like the devil in Iran or other things. It it's you know, it's different than talking about some church fathers whose writings have been pretty well preserved. It's easy to make fun of that stuff. I don't know. Um, it, it sort of get some demonology, diabology and, and find the funny stuff. But like here it's it's just so it's so fragmentary and complicated. Exactly. I think it's way easier to just make fun of the victors of history and poke fun at some of their ridiculous arguments than it is to turn to these texts and traditions, like for Gnosticism, that we know so little about. Yeah, it gets gets complicated with that. There's this idea we'll run into a few times, I think, this episode, that... Uh, there are these uh, lowercase o orthodox winners... Um, and then there's these lost Christian losers who are marginalized. What? You got a problem with that, Klaus? <laughs> it's a heuristic. It, it, it helps you to start to see the diversity in late ancient religions that are part of the swirling vortex between Judaism, Christianity, and classical philosophy. Whoosh! Whoosh! <laughs> Sorry, but just because... that's, your, that's your swirling vortex, Klaus, in case you didn't yeah. know what was happening. I, I, I knew it was happening. Okay. But just because we see the similarities between the ideas and stories in a group of texts doesn't mean everyone who wrote those texts were part of the same community. Well, that's what I mean. Doing an episode on the devil in Gnosticism is so stressful because we're not even sure what Gnosticism means. Yeah, it's, it's, a, 
it's an interesting word. It, it sort of has this sense of of knowledge, right? But it's also the sense of familiarity. Um, but yeah, there's a lot to suggest that this blanket category that authors like Irenaeus, who we talked about last time, they use these characteristics or this this name Gnosticism to name a group of theologies and stories that they hate. Um, so maybe we should just take all the scattered fragments of texts found at Nag Hammadi and just read each of them on their own. Okay, so Nag Hammadi, remind me, that's the place where this library was found buried in a sealed jar in Upper Egypt in 1945 with 52 different works? That's the one. (laughs) Before this discovery, we mostly knew about this thing called Gnosticism, the subject of today's episode, from polemical works and early church fathers like Irenaeus and Tertullian. Irenaeus, our man. Um, Okay, but was this thing called Gnosticism actually a thing? I think the question we really need to ask is whether this thing called Christianity was even a thing. Oh! (laughs) Cue the air horns. (laughs) (laughs) That's the point. Orthodox or even proto-Orthodox Christianity has no solid boundaries and structures for a lot longer than we might think. So to hold up Gnosticism as this other to proto-Orthodoxy is a bit distorting. Klaus, this is not getting any less stressful. (laughs) I know. It makes the ground feel a lot less solid. And maybe it shouldn't. We're talking about a few hundred years up to the creeds of the 4th century. And by that, I mean the creeds that hammer out highly abstract concepts of theology, like the Trinity, Christology, Incarnation, that sort of thing. So that stuff, it took a while to develop that stuff. So even the things that look like or seem to look like, quote unquote, normal Christian theology, it's still pretty soupy in terms of the mix. Sure, but it's still a bit disorienting to see how what we think of as this self-contained, internally consistent Christianity, that proto-Orthodoxy you mentioned, starts to slip away in what we customarily think of as its first few, you know, heroic centuries. So wait, are you trying to tell me that Gnosticism itself is a form of Christianity? I wish... I could give you a clear-cut answer to that question. I wish it so much. But, unsurprisingly, that too is a controversial question. There are references to Jesus in certain texts associated with Gnosticism, but less so in others. Some scholars posit that there was a Gnosticism that preceded Jesus, and that the early church then, you know, worked a little magic. They adapted Paul and the Gospels when it became apparent that they could fit, you know, with a little bit of finagling, into that Gnostic framework that they say pre-existed. It makes it seem like Gnosticism, if it's even a thing, is like really opportunistic and sort of just adapts these parts of traditions that make sense to it sort of willy-nilly. That's definitely one way to look at it. You, you know, the texts we're going to talk about seem to veer freely between these kind of nodes of Middle Platonism, early Christianity, and Judaism. And, you know, Judaism might actually be the most interesting element here. Yeah, I mean, so much of what you, if you, if you find some Gnostic texts, so much of what you see in like Gnostic Gospels, Gnostic literature is a sustained reimagining of the book of Genesis. Klaus... Don't beat around the burning bush here. The creator God, whether it's (laughs) Yahweh or Elohim, 
comes out chastened and humbled in these texts, right? I once had a teacher who refrained, who, who refrained, who, who referred. This is going great. <laughs> to referred to, referred to the Creator God of the Gnostic myths as quote some shithead who didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> and in the texts we're going to be talking about here, like the the secret book of John and the reality of the rulers, he has a few names like Eldabaoth, <laughs> Samael, other stuff, and. Yaldabaoth sort of sounds like this garbled version of Yahweh, Lord of Sabbaths. It's like with Yahweh and Sabbaths kind of jammed together. Mm, yeah, sure. That's, that's, what, that's what Bart Ehrman said anyway. I See, I'm in a fight with Bart Ehrman because I think it means Lord of Hosts or military forces. But, you know, whatever. We all, yeah, whatever. I, he's getting paid the big bucks. When is my first book coming out? No one knows. Okay, so, but where did the Gnostic version of the Creator God come from? Boy, am I glad you asked that highly inconvenient question. You're welcome. <laughs> this is where we get into some of this stuff that sounds like middle Platonism, which is like a way of saying a tradition of readers and commentators on Plato who were really into particular dialogues, like the Timaeus, which has this complicated creation story. So in this version of things, there's an incomprehensible God who is beyond everything. And at the same time, the text refers to this being as the mother-father or father-mother, evoking this pairing of sexed paternal figures. This god is purely spiritual or intellectual, and it contemplates itself because there's nothing else really going on. And, it and these sort of contemplations it goes through are so powerful that the objects of the contemplation come into reality. Things like life, truth, abstract categories that emanate from this one source. And crucially, the first emanation is the invisible virgin spirit, also known as Barbelo. Yes, Barbelo, get it. I always imagine Barbelo <laughs> is like really into weightlifting, like barbells, but maybe that's just me. Also, this emanation, this idea of like contemplating reminds me of this whole question of Gnosticism and even Christianity in this time period. Is it a thing? Well, it's like the contemplation itself made these emanations things, if you will. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And we were talking about, like, the, the creedal structure of the church that has doesn't really exist yet, but there's kind of a trinity in the pleroma, or the, this sort of realm of the fullness where these most primal spiritual beings, if beings even the right word to use, where they are. And it's like this high father, unknowable, singular god, Barbalo, the weight-crushing virgin spirit, and Christ, uh, you know, I guess akin to the the word in the Gospel of John, the sort of um, offspring of these other two. And this is the only aeon who is begotten, not disclosed. So sort of tapping into some of this, this sort of theological creedal language that we'll see later. I am so impressed that you're making this make any sense at all. Because let's be clear that the disclosure of an emanation means almost nothing to me. I just thought I'd just, just throw that one in there for everyone. Thank you. All right. The mother-father, male-female thing is super important. These emanations have a male and female aspect, and those need to be harmoniously united in order to think up new emanations. This all happens in the realm of harmony, beauty, truth, yada, 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 called the pleroma, or the fullness. 
So one day, one of these primordial emanations, wisdom, uh, Sophia, if you want to use her Greek name, tries to think something on her own, and it's a full-blown disaster. And by disaster, I mean that one of the texts compares the result to an aborted fetus. This is something that always strikes me as like hard to process with Gnosticism, sort of metaphysical gender binary complementarian thing that's going on a lot of the time. Why would you think that's confusing, Klaus? It makes perfect sense. <laughs> Everything we've said so far about emanations <laughs> makes lots of sense. So I guess what I find somewhat interesting about this is a comparison to Orthodox Christian and Jewish creation myths, in which, you know, you've got God, often described as male, who creates the world ex nihilo, or from nothing. And that model seems to contain within it a repudiation of sexual generation, and more particularly of the divine feminine that we see in other creation myths from the ancient Near East. Then in Christianity, we get accounts of the Trinity that retain this maleness of the Godhead in the language of father and son. But a lot of you have been asking, where is the mother here if there's a father and a son? And if we consider these Gnostic creation myths alongside this material, I suppose I like that at least we get an inkling of divine feminine figures, even if it comes with a lot of baggage, like complementarian pairings and the explicit repudiation of wisdom slash Sophia's single motherhood. That said, I think the language in The Secret Book of John, one of our Gnostic texts, is interesting when it describes her, quote, this was not an idle thought because of her, quote, invincible power. Not idle indeed. She inadvertently creates the creator god. Oops. Guess I created the creator god. Hashtag Yaldaboth. What are we, what are we calling him? Yaldaboth? Yeah, well, yeah. Call it like you see it. I don't Yaldaboth. Mm. Yal okay. Yaldaboth. Yeah. yeah. Hashtag Yaldaboth. What a prince. Prince shithead. He changes into the figure of a snake with a lion's head and flashing eyes like lightning. Mommy, mommy, play with me. Hiss, roar, boom. I'm definitely picturing Chucky from Child's Play somehow. But, more seriously, doesn't this remind you of the monsters of Revelation, which themselves are kind of reboots of Hebrew Bible monsters, especially the spare parts monsters of Daniel 7. <laughs> you know, the lion with the eagle's wings and all. But Sophia is so embarrassed of her monster baby that she tries to hide him in a cloud. But he's like an evil toddler who's learned to run, and off he goes. Klaus, you know nothing about evil toddlers, though, right? Of course not. I had no experience in that department. Only good ones, for sure. Uh, okay, cool. That's what I thought. Anyway, in a kind of mirroring of what Mom did, evil monster baby runs off and mates with his mindlessness, which creates the demonic archons, or rulers, so what's with this prohibition against having kids on your own? Like, why is this such a concern in this text? Yeah, it seems like sort of a euphemism for, uh, I don't know, alone time or <laughs> maybe, you know, masturbation. That seems to be what's going on here. Um, okay. But, you, you know, the, the, the way in which that can stand in our culture as a metaphor for uh, wasting your time or being self-indulgent, it kind of speaks to... This vision of Yaldabaoth is this kind of uh, this god who is trying to 
act all serious and important and is really just messing around. And the demons well, are just the offspring or just the, the demons are just the product of, of this, this guy just messing around. Okay. Well, that is definitely smarter than whatever I would have come up with for that question. So good job. This is why I always ask you the tough questions. Anyway, now we have a theogony, a kind of origin of the gods story of the archons. And who doesn't love a good origin story? I'm looking at you, Marvel and DC movie making machines. Anyway, there are a lot of archons and they are not a little confusing. Not least because some of them are called Cain, Abel, Belial, characters maybe we thought we knew. And a host of new characters as well with their own superpowers. The pattern for this pantheon comes from Sophia and little Yal, her monster offspring, Yaldabaoth, tries to make his own copy. He's so pleased with himself that he says, quote, I am a jealous god and there is no other god beside me. Stop me if you've heard that one before. But it sounds like something I may have read in, I don't know, the Hebrew Bible and the book of Exodus or Deuteronomy or something like that. Right you are, Klaus. But here we get with that great zinger. But by announcing this, he suggested to the angels with him that there is another god. For if there were no other god, of whom would he be jealous? Take that, <laughs> orthodox losers. Yeah. It's so, it's so strange because... There's lots of divine beings in these texts, and what we can gather of the original context of the Hebrew Bible, there are lots of different sort of divine beings, some of whom are rivals that Yahweh is, you know, supposed to be preeminent among. And so it's a, it seems a little unfair to be like, we have tons of these divine beings, but, you know, it's ridiculous that, that uh, Yaldabaoth would be like a little bit stressing the fact that there might be some others to, to worry about. Or that he, or maybe the point is he's just so, he's just so, he can't even wrap his mind around the fact that there could be anything else. I think they're like poking fun at the later push in the Jewish tradition that the Christian tradition picks up on that, oh no, it's strictly monotheism over here. And I think we have an alternate form of, you know, Judeo-Christian religious temperament among these Gnostic groups who are saying, y'all for real like there are just other divine beings let's own it and so i think they're kind of pushing back a little bit at that strict monotheism yeah yeah that, that makes sense um anyway just to sort of pick up the thread of uh Yaldabaoth and his his uh life and times so sophia the uh whole incarnation or embodiment of wisdom and the pleroma she's feeling super bad about screwing everything up and She's like, you know, she wants to get back to where she was. You know, she wants to get back to original level. Um, but like, you know, she and also she needs to like get this Yaldabaoth situation under control. And she's lacking something in herself. She needs to be restored what was lacking in herself. So there's like this celestial timeout to move back to that big toddler energy that should be the subtitle of this episode. <laughs> Hashtag big toddler energy. So Klaus, when you're reading this and the generation of the material world is coming from this screw up from Sophia or wisdom. Did you giggle a little bit? I mean, like who names your divine character wisdom and has her make the biggest screw up in all of divine proto history, right? 
Yeah, no, totally. And I think that's also like playing off of the, uh, the, the interest in wisdom as a character in uh, biblical literature and how that's starting to play the sort of logos theology um, and in, in sort of Alexandria Jewish philosophy and stuff. And, and I think, yeah, maybe it's also pushing on some of that, pushing back on that a little bit too. That makes actually a lot of sense. Okay. So moving back to our narrative, we get a kind of voiceover from higher in the heavens announcing the creation of humanity. Da, 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 da. It's from the voice of Forethought, the mother father. Uh, we think this is Barbello, but it's not entirely clear. So it's all super dramatic with the foundations of the abyss shaking and whatnot. The rulers, the archons, saw the image of Barbello through the water. Oh, there's water, by the way. In an echo <laughs> of the spirit moving over the waters that you see in Genesis chapter 1. create a psychic likeness of the image of the perfect first human being. Yaldabaoth and the angels and the powers and the demons are like, creating Adam will give us power and light. I mean, at least they provide a concrete reason for doing this creation thing in the first place, something that can't be said for the Genesis account. Anyway, to get Adam to actually come to life, luminaries from an on high sent by the mother father instruct Yaldabaoth to blow some of the spirit of Sophia into Adam to get him moving. Like this idea that Yaldabaoth has this sort of spiritual essence of his mother with him. But he doesn't realize how much power he is sharing because fundamentally one of his chief character traits is being ignorant. Adam, on the contrary, shows himself to be more enlightened and powerful than all the rest of Yaldabaoth's retinue. And so naturally they expel him into the material realm. Womp, womp, womp. Mother Father, everyone's favorite ambigender divinity, sends enlightened afterthought, which for me is like really just the most confusing, like uh, aeon manifestation ever. Like after, afterthought is, I guess, like consideration or just reflection. I'm not sure. Anyway, that that thing is sent to help Adam <laughs> and instruct him, and then hides inside Adam to go unnoticed by the rulers. The rulers create a body from the material elements to be a kind of prison for Adam. Well, that seems really normal, Klaus. Like that's, you know, when I need to hide from other eons and emanations, I often find the body of Adam to be a really great hiding place. So that part of the story, like all of the rest of it, seems super normal and I totally get it. So then, as some of you may have guessed, things actually get weirder. So remember that this is a dialogue between John and Jesus. Actually, did we ever mention that? Unclear. No. So FYI, the setup of this particular text is that Jesus is talking to his disciple, John, and they're just having like, they're just having a kiki, basically. They're having a chat. So Jesus, who is telling this whole story, is like, you know, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you know, the one in the Garden of Eden, I was the one who induced them to eat. So that was really weird because I don't know if you've read that story before, but it seems 
very much that A, Jesus is not in that story because it's in Genesis. B, if anyone induced anyone to eat anything, it was definitely maybe the serpent and then maybe Eve. But here we have a very different version of events. Again, back to that retelling of the Genesis narrative. So then John was all, wait, wasn't that the serpent? Because, you know, he read his Genesis. And Jesus, really getting into it at this point, laughs, which P.S. is a thing he never does in the Gospels, but it's a totally cute look for him. And so Jesus gives a very confusing answer about the snake, who maybe is also Yaldabaoth. Anyway, and that snake is instructing them, Adam and Eve, to eat of the wickedness of sexual desire and destruction, you know, like a snack, so that Yaldabaoth <laughs> could get some power back from Adam, because like we said, he, was, he gave up too much power to Adam. But I'm left with <laughs> just a couple of questions here. Remember, Travis, we're dealing with a text that presumes background knowledge of, you know, Gnosticism, if it's even a thing. And we're trying to work backwards. That is a helpful reminder. So I keep having the sense that I should understand these texts more, but maybe I'm aiming too high. So to summarize way too quickly, Sophia slash wisdom shows up to restore herself, whatever that means. And Jesus turns into an eagle, again, super normal, and perches on the tree of knowledge. So then Yaldabaoth shows up and is mad at the humans for eating of the tree when he told them not to. That part at least sounds familiar. Uh, but then again, going off script, Yaldabaoth rapes Eve. Uh, the humans are then too afraid to denounce Yaldabaoth and they get banished from Eden. So after the rape and as a result of the rape, Eve gives birth to Elohim and Yahweh whom you might think are just names for God, but in this story, uh, they are elemental divinities. One of them is good and one of them is bad. And they are also known, not confusingly at all, as Cain and Abel. <laughs> so just <laughs> hang with me, Klaus. <laughs> so the author sums up for us that Yaldabaoth is the source for sexual desire, but says it in a way like we're supposed to see how that's really logical from the plot line. Like it's really normal and like, why didn't you get this? I'm just saying what's very obvious here. And Adam and Eve later have Seth. Um, and Seth is super important in this particular strand of the Gnostic tradition. Sometimes scholars refer to these folks as Sethians which sounds like maybe a group we should join, Klaus. I just, I like the name. So let's look into that. Yeah, the, or, or the Im Immovable Race, is it the <gasps> yes. name Wait, they go by? Yes, what if we started a band called Seth and the Immovable Race? It sounds a little, <laughs> I don't know. It, it probably exists. To sound, I don't know why, but it sounds a little like, like the politics of that band are not something I want to be part of. This like racial, I don't, let's not. So <laughs> no. let's not and say we did. So after all this, Yaldabaoth has the humans drink the water of forgetfulness, like we're in a Greek myth, but whatever, I suppose we are. Um, but Seth is primed to help recover and restore what was repressed. So, Klaus, um, can you please save us from this totally nonsensical narrative? Probably not. Uh, I mean, I was, of course, struck by how the different biblical characters get doubled up and combined like Cain and Abel and going together with Elohim and Yahweh. And they're like these evil elemental demons. And 
uh, there's like this like this funhouse effect to the whole text where everything gets really psychedelic, um, and it's not as if from what you know from what I gather that the people who wrote these texts didn't know the the Genesis story that is in so you know some way in shape and form approximates what's in the Hebrew Bible and in other Bibles today, and so it's like it's there is this kind of mischievousness to the whole thing. But again, it also like going along with that. Uh, one of the arguments about who the Gnostics are is that they're these uh, apocalyptic Jews who are just so bummed out from how bad things are going that they start to rewrite the text to make them really ridiculous. I just like I don't know. I don't know about you, but I have like a hard time buying that. Um, it's almost too aggressively mocking for that to totally make sense to me. Um, Whereas it, the the Christian what what develops in Christian theology is almost a little bit more. I mean, this is maybe this is just confirmation bias or something, a recency bias. But it's just like, you know, right? Like you just take it and you try to make everything culminate in Jesus. And I'm like, okay, that 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 is pretty contorted. But you know, it retains it retains the sort of older the older threads. Whereas this is just like, you know, covers them in glitter and you know, messes around and puts them all crooked and stuff. But in a way, isn't it a bit more honest, right? Like all the contortions that Christian theologians over the millennia have performed in an attempt to harmonize some of the more difficult Hebrew Bible passages with their creeds. Here, it's like, well, let's just not even, let's just go off book here. Even when we're dealing with the foundation myths that, have these textual sources in the Hebrew Bible in the Jewish tradition. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, I think there's there's a point there. I also think that it's like in the ways in which um, early Christianity, you have these people who are interested in Judaism but are not Jews, who are absorbing this material and then doing new things with this. That kind of seems to me to apply here too, or at least, you know, has a, has, has some, you know, possibility of that applying where it's like, you have these people who are outsiders who are exposed to these texts and then they, they have a lot of texts and a lot of myths and they just start, you know, doing this mythopoesis thing and they, they make it their own and they have a different, they have a different orientation and this gives them new costumes to dress up in, but they can do different things with it. Yeah. They definitely have a different sensibility about how to engage with these myths, right? It feels much more oral culture. It feels like embellishing on and riffing on what a story that was received. There are a few elements from the Secret Book of John, which, by the way, I do think it's a great name, that I want to touch on because they seem to riff off of themes that we've seen or talked about before. So the first is there is a kind of watcher's myth rehash, but in this text, it comes after the flood, and there's no ark in this version. So you've got the watchers fornicating, as they're wont to do, as you know, with human women, and they fill them with darkness and evil. So what comes of this situation? The 
people grew old without experiencing pleasure and died without finding truth or knowing the God of truth. Oof, that is sort of sad. In this way, all creation was forever enslaved from the beginning of the world until the present day. So it's sort of an explanatory myth that gives us what you need from the Watcher's myth, i.e. a kind of origin of evil story, uh, with a couple of small changes. So that's there, I want to mention that. The other element is this idea we've mentioned before that's a little confusing. The term is divine forethought. And this is sort of Jesus's id self, if you will. And Jesus describes descend and Jesus describes descending into the dark realms of a prison. And here it sounds a lot like the harrowing of hell. But in fact, I think it's just in this instance, in this text, Jesus is preaching to embodied humans, and that prison is the prison of the material world. Cool. Yeah, no, that's those are all like important connections of things we've talked about. And I wanted to say one of the striking things I read about this, um, the uh, secret book of John uh, in, in Bracky's book, and, and he gets it, I think, from Karen King's book, is how uh, this, this work of theology is not marginal if we're thinking about its actual context in the ancient world. And in fact, those two claim that this is actually the most sophisticated and complex and ambitious work of theology produced in the Christian tradition. And so that everything that comes afterwards is actually in some ways like a reaction to what is being formulated in this secret book. Um, so I want to give it its dues as, as a, as a major, you know, unlikely passed over cornerstone of Christian theology. Wait, so Klaus, you're saying that all theology that comes after this masterwork is a kind of imperfect emanation, a sort of imperfect wisdom, almost like an aborted fetus. Is that what you're saying? I couldn't have put it any better myself. Yes, that's perfect. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to the reality of the rulers, which is a, a similar book um, that you that you really looked into. And I just I love the title because it kind of gets at an important aspect of what we're talking about in these episodes is just how the world is dominated by these rulers, which is like a euphemism for saying demons. Um, and this is sort of a key point in all this Gnostic literature. Uh, and it's one of the reasons we in addition to sort of giving, fleshing out what people like Irenaeus are going off about, the idea of evil and demonology that is maybe familiar, maybe, maybe more familiar or less familiar at given moments of these texts is, is like really a central preoccupation. And it's like really important for making people aware of their surroundings, like kind of matrix style so that they can sort of get some liberation from these demonic forces that operate chiefly through things like their bodies, their desires, fate, um, which are all sort of couched in this tyrannical political language of, of the rulers. So that's, yeah, so that's, so they're real. They're really real. Um, so yeah, maybe Travis, can you just sort of walk us through some of the the finer points of the reality. Yeah, of the absolutely. So you've got one of my favorite characters who's this female spiritual presence called the spirit, who's roughly analogous to the afterthought we've been chatting about in the secret book of John. So she's the one who makes a living soul for Adam, whom the rulers had created as a kind of 
mud or earth creature, but who until that point had lacked a spirit. So that's from, unsurprisingly, spirit. Spirit gives Adam a spirit. Great. You're, you're welcome, Klaus. You're welcome. So the creation of Eve is also a little bit different here. The Archons seem to cut out Adam's side, which was already like a woman. The side of Adam. So take a second here. And I couldn't make any sense of this part of the story without supplying part of Plato's Symposium here. So this is the idea that in this, in Plato's Symposium, which is a conversation about love among some dinner guests, I'm going there, apparently I'm going there. One of the guests is supposed to give a speech about love and says, oh, you know, this is the origin of love. The origin of love is there were these creatures originally that would look like us to as two people who are sort of together, sort of bound together back to back. So some of them, it would look to us like a man and a woman who were bound together, some like two men and some like two women. Anyway, they, they end up angering the gods who sort of split them in half and love is you looking for your other half. So that is a terrible retelling of the story, but that's the only way I could kind of make sense of Adam's side looking like a woman. Um, what I don't know. What do you make of that, Klaus? Yeah, I, I think we've seen so much of how uh, Greek mythology and philosophy is sort of working in these texts on some level, supplying this kind of really strange technical jargon, you know, like uh, the hypothesis of the archons, <laughs> you know, sure. all this stuff. And, um, and so I think you get like that sort of jargon level, but you also do, yeah, I think you're right. I think it does, it does really resemble that myth that's told in symposium, um, which I always think of as more of a, of a like a, a rager drinking party than dinner party, but maybe that's, you know, it's just sort of my, my, uh, my instincts. Oh no, that's, that's right. <laughs> Sorry. Dinner party. Absolutely. I mean, like we have drunken guests showing up late and like, yeah, it's, it seems very intense. Of course, you know, we, there is one character who doesn't really drink too much in it. So, um, okay. So yeah. anyway, Adam gets his woman half cut off and this is the origin <laughs> and this is the origin of what's called the woman of spirit, who's not exactly Eve, but sort of has Eve-like qualities. There is a rape scene in this story too, but it's way weirder than the one that we talked about in the secret book of John. So the archons rape the shadowy reflection of the woman of spirit. So basically she's running away from them. They're pursuing her and she's like, turns into a tree sort of like Daphne and Apollo, and they can't get her, but she leaves behind her kind of shadowy reflection and they are able to rape the shadowy reflection of her. So then the woman of spirit becomes this female spiritual presence, spirit that we call spirit, who then takes the form of a snake and then tempts the woman of flesh who is now a thing. Okay, so the woman of flesh is we don't really know where she comes from, but it looks kind of like what you would think of as Eve, but without a spirit. And then the spirit that was this female spirit takes on the snake, inhabits the snake and tempts the woman of flesh, okay? The snake is called in this totally straightforward text, the instructor. So it gets kind of a nice title here. 
So then the the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, who are who have souls but not spirits, they decide to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and their imperfection became apparent in their lack of knowledge. What does that mean? That's a quote directly from the text. There's a kind of Gnostic flavor I want to point to here. So what's wrong with Adam and Eve? Well, it's not so much a story of their sinning and becoming, you know, in change to the flesh. It's about imperfection and a lack of knowledge. That's a very characteristically um, knowledge-centric way of looking at the story, a very what we would call Gnostic way, because of course Gnosticism is from Gnosis or knowledge. A couple of other things to note from this text. One is that Adam and Eve have a daughter called Noria, and Noria is undefiled by the rulers. The archons, the demons, they pursue Noria, but she is this heroine who is able to outwit, outrun, out, outdo them in every way, and becomes the kind of heroine of the latter part of this work. She battles the rulers. The chief of the rulers tries to defile her. She's having none of it. The rulers withdraw. And then we get a kind of story of the origin of the heavens and the gods that's given by an angel called Eleleth, which totally sounds like some sort of Tolkien elfin character to me. But anyway, Eleleth, or Sagacity, <laughs> comes down and tells us kind of how things got to where they are to Noria, who's our kind of late-born heroine of the tale. And those are some of the highlights, Klaus. <laughs> oh, thank you. I mean, I think um, one of the things that really stands out to me about these stories is just how frequently sexual violence is a central theme in the creation of human beings or beings with bodies. Um, and we saw a little bit of this, I think, also with the Manichaean episode that we did um, but it's just, I don't know, uh, it's, it's strange because we think of sexual desire and then of course, like sexual violence as being preeminently embodied. Like it's about what people do with their bodies and how they, how they are cruel to other bodies. And these like archon demon rulers, it's, it's strange to think about the ways in which they are lustful and yet they're not quite embodied in, in the way that we think of. Um, and there's like these big debates later about how demons do have sex with people. Um, there's like a lot of, in, in, in like 14th century theology about like, oh, they're like these airy like uh, replicas or these airy, uh, this airy phantasmagoria that's sort of uh, seducing people. And here it's just like these, these beings are characterized as you were saying by not having knowledge or being ignorant. But along with that ignorance seems to be this, um, this sexualized rage and violence that I just, I find to be really telling and, and really, you know, obviously disturbing. Uh, but it, you know, it's like when you think about the origin of human societies, we know it as coming out of that kind of violence. I wonder like what it does to how you look at the world then. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one way that I think from the text, we're supposed to get that the archons are, demonic is that they engage in this kind of behavior, this kind of use of force and violence against human women and against uh, feminine spirits, right? So that's one piece of the puzzle here. A question that I have, 
has to do with is sexual violence as depicted in these narratives always about progeny and taking control and creating something new in one's own image as a kind of selfish act and or is there is that not always the case is it always about you know is it more about the question of sort of desire or about um exerting power i'm not really sure right and like those things i think overlap a lot too but yeah i think that's yeah i think you're right that there is a sense of of domination and power that seems to be central so i noticed something pretty important for this podcast when i was reading for today's Uh-oh. episodes i was afraid we were getting to this part it is a little awkward, but it needs to be said. The devil, whom we've come to know and love, doesn't really have a spot on this team. Wait, 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 hold up. Uh, that can't be right, because remember we've got Belial is one of the Archons, and that, that's got to count for something here, Klaus. Yeah, you know, I'll give you that Belial does get a mention, Um but these texts are always doing that. They're always making these gestures like everyone you know or you thought you knew from the Bible is doing something different. And it's re- the, these texts are really big into lists, which I guess doesn't make them too different from other biblical texts. <laughs> That's but yeah. true. <laughs> They're just like throwing names in lists. Like we, want, we have this guy, we got this guy, this guy's a demon, is one of our demons, Cain and Abel, we'll, we'll use them in two different lists. It doesn't matter. Um, but yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's right. We certainly can't find any kind of characteristic devilish activities. I mean, there are angels and demons who help build up Adam, etc., and who rule the cosmos, keeping the descendants of Seth trapped in body prisons. That sounds pretty bad, right? Sort of? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's bad. We don't have the devil, though, as we've come to know him, but we do have Yaldabaoth, the prince of shitheads. I will forever be calling him Prince of Shitheads now. So I think this is really critical. It takes us back to one of the big questions of the podcast, one that, you know, we should give credit to Adam Kotzko's book, Prince of This World. What if God and the devil were the same guy? Yeah, it reminds me of that line from the uh, Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie. Uh, it's like a constant meme on NBA Twitter, which for better or worse, I am sometimes part of. Um, we're... Uh, you see the Joker's face and he's like, I'm going to become the Joker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's kind of like that with God. It's like, Oh, like I'm going to go rogue and it's time for my devil mode, you know? Um, and we have like this God who's omniscient, omnipotent, but the all benevolent part gets, uh, you know, smeared over with Joker face paint sometimes. And, uh, it falls out of the equation and it keeps falling for nine days until it splashes down into the fiery pool of hell along with the boys from Paradise Lost. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'd forgotten about that particular detail. Yes, that's absolutely right. They keep falling and falling forever. Okay, so God lets the devil slash demons fall, though they are convicted of having free will and are thus morally responsible, right? God is sort of the manager of hell, all that stuff. Right, yeah. And it's interesting, though, in, in... the, the prince of this world where we're, we're sort of working through these ideas that Costco doesn't really want to talk about the Gnostics or he, he sort of waves them off and he quotes Karen King's book, uh, what is Gnosticism? And he says, it's not, it's not even really worth talking about it because it's not a coherent category. And we touched on this before, but 
one of the ways in which this gets confusing is that scholars and Christian polemicists have grouped together Gnosticism under this category, and it's not clear whether the category that scholars or these polemicists have used is actually in any way reflective of what the communities who use these texts, like how they identified themselves or how they allied themselves and so on and so forth. So like that's what Costco uses that point. And I got to say, it's sort of a, a little bit of a cheap way out. Yeah, and especially considering as we talk about this relation, this idea of God and the devil being two sides of the same coin, perhaps, that we've got Yaldabaoth, who seems to make this point about this slippage between God and the devil. So Sethian Gnostics, at least, just made the God we know from Genesis into an archdemon. That's what they did here. And, you know, there's some logic to that. Yahweh oversees a lot of slaughter in Genesis alone. And by Yahweh, I mean the Hebrew Bible Yahweh, not the one in this text. Um, and so that God gets turned into Yaldabaoth and is sort of an evil character in this story, right? Maybe Yaldabaoth is a fumbling archdemon from the point of view of the pure spiritual eons. But for humans, Yaldabaoth is serious business. He's flooding folks. He's burning down Sodom and Gomorrah. He's banishing Adam and Eve from the garden. There's a lot going on there. Making Abraham sacrifice Isaac. Rude. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> um, and I think what you were just saying, it's, it's really crucial. It's that this, the creator, it's the creator God who's evil. Cr- this creation is mm-hmm. evil. And I think that goes back to like the way rape keeps getting associated with it. Like there's something just fundamentally like skewed and off about everything. Uh, everything here, especially Yaldabaoth, is ill-begotten, misguided, and ignorant. And at the same time, the Gnostics, the people who are practicing this religion or writing these texts, or at least thinking about this stuff, uh, their true identity, as they see it, lies with this spiritual lineage that stretches back to Sophia, wisdom, through Seth, one of Adam's sons, And he's like this repository or this keeper of the truth about the spiritual essences that infuse authentic humanity. Well, I think that gives us a a great kind of rationale for including these texts and including the Gnostics as we think about that broader set of traditions that pit some sort of demonic figure that talk about its relation to material creation to God as creator and to this whole set of what do we even should we call this Christianity to this whole Christian you know project I guess so that's it for this week tune in next time for other hopefully smart things about the devil so thanks for listening see you next time This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.